So my name is Jeff Rupert and uh, I'm a Cordell breeder and I have been a Cordell breeder for over 30 years. Um, I started when I was 16 years old. Um, <clears throat> we've lived pretty much in this general area on the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland my whole life. Um, my father was in the hardware business, uh, but uh, we always had a, a small farm, 50 acres. Um, today it's 200 acres, but back then we, when we started, it was 50. And I got into sheep raising because my mom is a, an artist and she uh, kind of moved from one medium to the next. And when I was about 14 years old, she thought it'd be interesting to take up fiber arts. Um, she got uh, into spinning and then weaving. And <clears throat> before she was done with it, she had the, the hand-hewn, huge room size, you know, uh, loom that took up the entire room in our, one of our rooms in our house. Um, so we were looking around for a breed of sheep that we could raise that was also showable in the United States that had good wool. So that, that really at the time came down to Corydales and Romneys. And there were more Corydales at that time than, than Romneys. So we gave Corydales a try. And I was 16 years old at the time. And uh, it started as a hobby that uh, I could never quit. So we just have gone, uh, gone from there um, and, and had Corydales the whole time. Um, when I went off to college at Virginia Tech um, as an sci um, animal science major, the, my parents kept the sheep going. Um, I went through vet school and now I'm a veterinarian, which helps to keep the sheep afloat and when it's hard times. But, um, but the sheep uh, have generally have, have gradually gotten to where they, they, most years they break even now. We run a flock of Corydales that's about 50 ewes. Um, and we've also started a flock of fine wool sheep, which started out as Cormos, a Cormo flock, and is morphing into a Merino flock um, because uh, the Merino or the Corm Cormo gene pool is so small. I just I couldn't find the, the genetics that I needed to keep that going. And I can tell you all about Cormos at some point, if you're interested in that, I've been to the Downey flock in Tasmania and been all around and sort of studied up on, on Merinos, Cormos and Corridales. Not that I'm an expert in any of that, but, um, but I've made three trips to Australia and it's been very, very educational. Yeah, I would love to come back for another hour with that because I just, um you know, the whole business of where, you know, choosing an animal from two different breeds and putting them together, what the thinking is and how you're choosing those mates. But let's stay with Corydale for the moment. So you have 50 ewes and um, do you have any rams? So yes, yeah, we, are, we, we keep, you know, between four and six rams, uh, stud rams around all the time. Um, yeah, our, our flock was uh, started, um, uh, back, as I say, when I was 16, was probably around uh, 1976. Mm -hmm. um, 
And for a long time, we did, uh, we did show the Cordell's in 4-H, et cetera. Um, but around the year, two, uh, actually, in the year 2000, the um, Corydale's held the World Corydale Congress here in the U.S., and it was held in Ohio. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to meet uh, breeders from around the world and really got to know some of the Australian Corydale breeders well. And um, at the time, I, I was thinking, I'd been thinking for a long time about trying to improve wool quality uh, because um, hand spinning wool is, uh, is always more, more valuable um, in the U.S., and commercial wool, and now gradually it's got to the point that with the medium wools, Corydales are medium wools, the, the only true market for Corydale wool is hand spinning wool now. So you're selling so, directly to the hand spinner, not okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, um, so for the last 18 years, we have bred exclusively to Australian uh, genetics through artificial insemination. So you're Sorry. Not your rams for that. So, Sorry? You're not using your rams for that. You're using. So, what, so, so when I say that, I mean I, we haven't bought a, an American ram in, since 2000, at the year 2000. And, um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll uh, artificially inseminate a portion of our flock every year. And then we'll breed naturally to the, our own rams, but they are progeny from the artificial insemination. Gotcha. Okay. So, that brings, right. so, so, so we've gone so many years through the, the Australian breeding that our, our Corydales look identical, I think, to the, to the Corydales that you would find in Australia, which, which reach back to the roots of the breed. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? So it's a New Zealand breed, right? At the very, very, very beginning? So, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a, it's a bit of a contentious issue, but the Corydale breed was founded, um, co-founded around the year 1874 mm -hmm. um, in Australia and New Zealand at the same time. But New Zealand gets all the credit mm -hmm. um, and that's, Probably rightfully so, but the, the fact is that the Australians were working on the same, um, the same uh, uh, dual purpose sheep using Merino ewes and uh, English Lincoln rams um, to, to create this hybrid breed that, that, that they eventually stabilized. And, and they, they at first were working separately, but then I believe that they pretty quickly shared genetics across the, the, the two countries. But the, the original Corydales, their name comes from New Zealand. And, you know, in the end, the New Zealanders, you know, just probably deserve and get most, most of the credit for founding the breed. But anyway, it was it was founded back then, but in, it it flourished starting up in the early 1900s, and it was the year 1914 when they were first imported into the U.S. Okay, so just for a second, um, explain what a dual purpose breed is, and that was the motivation, right, for combining these. Two? Yeah. Okay. So just yes, the dual. So the dual, yeah, dual purpose breed is is a breed that's developed to put um 
pretty much equal emphasis on meat and wool. Mm -hmm. And so the, at the time, the thing about uh, the, the, the merino sheep at the time were, were quite a small body sheep with very fine wool. And the Lincolns are very big framed uh, meteor sheep with um, quite bold carpet wool. And so getting that, um, that cross stabilized and, and ideal was probably quite a, I mean, it's quite an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. The resulting wool that, you know, that we have now is a, is a medium wool. It's quite, quite crimpy. And um, it, the, the fiber diameter ranges from 25 to 30. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be as low as 22, probably in the young stock to 30 microns. And so um, you're keeping your eye on this all the time if you're um, breeding, especially for ham spinners. So are you then, once you have some lambs there, do you sort of check and then select ones that you want to continue breeding because they're a little finer? How does it work as a breeder? <clears throat> yeah. Selling, so you're selling fleece, and do you also sell your animals? I mean, well, someone says, yeah. I'm going to start a farm and I need a good, you know, I need a good you and a good ram. I mean, would you get them going? Yeah, we are, we we um, do sell breeding stock when we have availability. Um, it's much more likely that we would have rams available than ewes, though, because um, I've been um, trying to aggressively upgrade the quality of the wool. So we've been just really holding back almost all of our ewes. From time to time, we'll sell. We'll have a few ewes ewes to sell, but um, but uh, mainly. You know, we can't go anywhere else to buy our, our stock right now. Um, we can't go anywhere else in the United States. So we, we really depend on the artificial insemination to improve it. Yeah. Uh, what, what we do is, um, what I, mostly what I do as far as selecting uh, the keeper lambs is visual appraisal. Mm -hmm. But with the, year, with the rams, the stud rams, we do send out wool samples from the midside and the, and the rich wool, which is, you know, found on the back leg. We'll send those out from micron testing so we can get an idea. The initial Corydales that we brought in, Corydale semen we brought in was very, very bold wool, almost, well, very, very bold, very strong wool. Um, beautiful, uh, beautifully crimped and, and, and lustrous, but a little bit, a little bit uh, not as soft as I wanted. Yeah. So I've been working to get that, that yeah. softness down more. Mm -hmm. So even within a single breed, you can have varieties, can't you? It sounds like. Cause there's a wide range. Yeah, because you are. There's a wide, wide range in Corydales. Yeah, but and you're trying to work at one end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, we're, we're moving towards the finer end, but, but, I, but there's, limit, there's a limit to that. I really, I really want the Corydale breed to always be a separate breed and not be a not be a subset of merinos. Yes, which so, describe uh, Corydale. I mean, I'm, tell so me the ideal. It. Yeah, the ideal Corydale is a medium-bodied sheep. Um, the the ewes should weigh about 175 pounds when they're adult ewes, and the rams should weigh about 250 to 275 pounds. Um, they're really, uh, they're heavy cutting, uh, well-wooled sheep that have um, 
wool um, on their head and then wool also down on their legs. Mm -hmm. So because that's really highly correlated to the, um, the, the total pounds of fleece that you're going to get, even though you're going to skirt away the head wool and the leg wool, having that wool there, mm -hmm. reading for that leads to a, a heavier, heavier cutting fleece. It's a pole breed. They, they don't have horns. Mm -hmm. um, and then the trademark characteristic of the breed that we, we strive for is a black nose and black feet, mm -hmm. but no other color anywhere else on the body. Just white. And that's very tricky. Yeah. yeah, the rest of the body is white. Now, there are, there are a few flocks in the U.S. that raise natural colored Corydales. Um, you can find them popping out from time to time. And then if you, you know, if you select for it, you can, you can get color genes in there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we, we don't do that here. And you said, you know, keeping it white was kind of tricky. Does that mean that the, um, the color gene is recessive, but once in a while... So that occasionally uh, you get a colored sheep and it's just a total surprise? Right, right. Um, so the tricky part I was referring to is the nose color. Because, oh, okay. Okay. because yeah, and the feet and the feet. Um, because uh, merinos um, are naturally a pink nose, white footed breed. And then the, the Lincolns are naturally a black nose, black footed breed. So doing that, when they did that original cross, then they start, they selected for the black nose, black feet. Um, a lot, a, a significant number of the really nice wooled Corydales will have a fairly light nose. Mm -hmm. um, conversely, if you, if you start selecting too hard for a black nose and black feet, then you can start to get extra color on the legs and on the face, yeah. you know, uh, creeping into the, the hair. And of course it's a, it's a, uh, a disqualification if there's any if there's any black color in the wool yeah. it's disqualified for registry in the Corridale Association. Now, yeah, back to your point your point about the um, the the white sheep and having an occasional black one pop out. Yeah, that does happen, but um, it's interesting. I think um, that there there are some flocks where black sheep pop out more frequently than others. We haven't we haven't actively discouraged it, I would say, but since we've imported and worked with the Australian sheep, it's been, it's been 15 years since we had a significantly black sheep born here. But if you go to Australia and you see a band of a, a thousand sheep out there, every once in a while, you'll see a black one, even in the Merinos, yeah. just, it just happens. So you have 200 acres. Do you have other sheep on there or other animals of any kind? No, we, um, I had a friend that was raising some Clydesdales here. Mm -hmm. um, most of the farm is out of production. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's 40 acres that, uh, that, that's um, leased out for soybeans and corn and whatnot. But, um, and that helps me because I cooperate with that farmer and he gives me a discount on hay because we do we, we do buy in hay I used to make my own but I the kids are all gone now and I, I can't do that by myself we really only use square bales we can't we have no use for round bale hay it's too it's too messy the big the big the big key to hand spin, selling hand spinning wool is keeping the vegetable matter out of it right so exactly keeping it clean you don't use do you use coats at all we do yeah we do Exactly. We do, and we we only, but we only coat. We're coating selectively now because 
as the flock gets bigger it, and and the more that you turn them out and keep them on the pasture more you know most of the year it's it's really hard to keep up with the coats mm -hmm. um you know you've got to from from birth to their first shearing you're going to change the coat about six times as they grow yeah. so so the most mostly we're doing the yearling ewes uh the the ewe the lambs and the and the ram lambs and then um yeah i i mean probably 20 or 30 percent of the of the brood ewe flock also is coated but it's it's a job keeping them up keeping up with it because they're they're out in a big field and and if one of them loses a coat it's a it's it's quite a quite a pain in the rear to get them all in just to put that coat back on <laughs> yeah and um when i first contacted you you told me it was lambing season so it seems so here we are in the, um, we're having a major nor'easter right now i think you already had it maybe i don't know where it came from but um yeah. so um you're lambing now in february yeah yeah it's um it's like there's several reasons for that the tradition in the show ring was has always been that um uh spring lambing classes start january 1st with january 1st born lambs so everyone tries to get their lambs born the first of january and onward um however i've experimented over the years with different <clears throat> lambing schemes um a few years ago, I tried lambing later in the spring, and there's there you know it kind of cuts both ways. Um, it's the lambs do well initially because it's warm, um, but there seems to be more disease trouble. Uh, we can run into pro more problems with pneumonias and things like that that the baby lambs can get, um, and then tail docking can be an issue if flies are out. <clears throat> because we have to we have to dock the tails um, because otherwise in the summertime fly strike could be too big of a, an issue. And docking the tails means cutting it down to a smaller yeah yeah. Okay. yeah yeah removing the tail yeah so we lamb we lamb in the cold but we have a barn we keep the sheep in the barn while they're lambing and we've got the heat lamps blazing and uh, you know lambs are under the heat lamps and everybody's quite happy. So hot so you have um, 50 years. How many sheep do you have at the moment? You sent me that photograph of this just irresistible little babies. Were they just fresh out of the womb? They look so big. Yeah, those were our first two. Yeah, oh. we've only we've only got six lambs born so far. But this weekend is you know January 30th is the is the the spot on date for our AI lambs. So usually we'll have a big burst of lambs starting today on through the weekend. So yeah, we're, we're watching pretty closely right now. Yeah. Huh. So what do you do then with all those lambs? You just. Um, well, um, we, we keep a significant number of them. Um, as I said, was saying before, it's, you know, one of the wonderful things about, about wool, about sheep is that, that wool is a highly heritable trait. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some traits that like, probably like mothering ability or um, I don't know. There's some traits that are not highly heritable, so it's hard to make progress. But with wool, it's highly heritable. So you can make progress fast. <clears throat> so we're keeping a lot of, we're keeping most of our, um, the top end of our ewe lambs. 
and then um, they go back into the flock and then I'll select through, I'll go through the flock and, and, and the poorer fleeced ewes go off to market and, you know, so we make progress that way. But generally the top 20 to 30% of the ewe lambs are kept. And then from the uh, 70% that, that don't measure up go to the livestock yards in New Holland, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, which is quite a famous really in the area um, stockyards. And the prices for lamb and sheep of all ages have been fantastic mm -hmm. the last year. This is why you have a dual purpose sheep. I mean, it can, it supports your yeah, yeah. weight and that's, that's one yep. we, we put some in the freezer uh, for ourselves. We, and we also sell, occasionally sell whole uh, freezer lambs to people. We have an abattoir custom butchering shop about half an hour down the road mm -hmm. um, that, that will help us with that. So yeah, yeah. People buy lamb from us and it's, it's uh, shrink wrapped and frozen and looks just like you, you know, just like you would see at the grocery store. Have you ever been tempted to do a different kind of sheep? Or tried another, I mean, just another herd or just yeah, yeah, we're moving aggressively in the direction of merinos to 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 bring up the merino flock. And I I I expect that, that eventually the merino numbers will eclipse the Corydales. I'm I'm gonna always have Corydales because yeah. I love the breed. Yeah. And I, I think that hand spinners love the way the wool spins. It's so so easy spinning. Yeah. But there's no commercial market for for medium wool right now, it's worth 10 cents a pound or less. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think it will ever come back because of the synthetic uh, fibers that's out there. Um, but Merinos, sort of like Ang Angus beef, Merinos have made a, uh, a brand for themselves and, and rightly so because the, the, the softness is unbeatable. So we're, we're we're expanding the merinos. I've imported um, uh, semen, merino semen, and this is the first year we're using those over the over the fine wool flock, and uh, pretty excited about that. So, say a little bit more about merino because I think um, you know it's a, a word and a sheep that you hear about all the time. Um, we carry a yarn called Delane Merino, and I've been trying to stress that it's a particular, you know. Not all merinos are merino. <laughs> there are different <laughs> different kinds of merino, and this is a particular. Oh, but yeah. Well, I'll 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 wade I'll I'll wade right into the controversy and give you my. my I didn't perspective. even know there was one, so this is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, there will there there probably will be. Here's here's what I know. Um, <clears throat> if you go to Australia, you will find us that the mer that the merino breed, in terms of wool quality has the full spectrum of from from ultra fine to quite bold Corydale style it doesn't go all the way to carpet wool but it's they'll you can find merinos over there uh, i believe particularly in the western part of our australia that the the wool is medium wool medium grade wool but <clears throat> on the uh, you know, on the, on the finer, finer side, the, the ultra fine and super fine wool is what's really in demand. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that's controversial is that in this country, everyone, the hand spinners have fallen in love with Cormo wool, mm -hmm. completely, completely understandable. But what, what you have to recognize really, to be honest, is 
the Cormos are a breed made up of Corydales and, cor uh, and Merinos, right? Right, right. But there's no visible remnant of the of the Corydale in the Cormo breed. Those those sheep were developed at the Downey flock in um, Dungrove was the flock name, and I've been to the to the the place. It's a it's like a I want to say fifty thousand acre uh, um, farm stud. They. Um, they have, they were able to start with a U base of like 8,000 Merinos and then sat, uh, um, or Corydales and then Saxon Merino Rams. And any, anyway, over their process, the, the, the wool has ended up being very nice white, ha nice handling Merino style wool. Mm -hmm. So if we're really honest about it, the Cormo breed is really a subset of the Merinos, okay. at least there. Now you can go to, you can go to New Zealand, I'm told, and find Cormos, yeah. but they won't be the Downy Cormos. They could be, they could be a, a Merino or a Corydale style wool marine, uh, kind of sheep. Yeah. And they are calling those Cormos, but the only Cormos in this country are actually the Downy Cormos. A very limited gene pool, beautiful shape, yeah. but um, but they're at the end of the day they're merinos. Merinos with another name. That's so interesting because we also have um, Cormo yarn, and it's it's such a different yarn from the Delaine Merino. But of course, they're spun in different mills in different ways. One is semi worsted, and one is worsted. And it would be interesting to take the fiber and reverse them, and then look at the yarns again and see if you could tell yeah. the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things about the Cormo that's always advertised is it's the wool is so consistent. It's almost mathematical, you know, it's just the whole animal is always this way. And, and that was one of the selling points, you know, whereas maybe, as you said, the Merino can range. So that brings up a question then, if Merino fiber can go from super fine to bold, I love that word, I've never heard that used before, then um, how do you define a Merino? Because it's not obviously by the fiber, it must be by other characteristics. I mean. Fine fiber, I think of as merino. So, how can a bold merino be a real merino? <laughs> <laughs> I think some I think some Corydale breeders in Australia would ask that that very question. So, um, uh, first off, first I'll say um, about the the um, terminology I use. I picked up from my friends in Australia, and I I owe them all the thanks for the stuff that they've taught me. But, but. But first, the first thing to understand is that, you know, the, the term coarse is yeah. a dirty word. Oh, no. So we know. never say coarse. <laughs> you never say coarse, right? The two acceptable, right, the two acceptable terms are, are bold wool or strong wool. And I say sturdy wool. That'll work too. But the thing about it is, 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 and, 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 and I don't want this to come across as, as at all that I'm that it's like slamming Cormo, you know, the Cormo breed or Cormo breeders at all. I what they what what they're working with is really fantastic. But the the, the only reason that that wool is as consistent as you say is because the Downies were hell bent on wool quality, and 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 they they refined their uh, genetics down so that all the all the wool was consistent. Yeah. But you can you can go if you go to Australia and you go to a really good super fine flock, you'll find the same thing uh, that their wool is 
extremely consistent. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm working on here. Now, the problem is that, and, and, and the truth is, yeah, that Merinos largely are defined by wool quality and they, and in my opinion, they should be fine wool sheep. Um, but in the US, wool quality hasn't been taken into account, um, hasn't been considered uh, enough in, among the Merino breeders, in my opinion. There are a few Merino breeders in the West, the big range flocks that produce some pretty good fine wool. But when I went to try and find um, a ram, a fine wool ram, Merino ram to, to improve what I have here, I just couldn't do it. So yeah. we, we had to go back across to Australia to do it. The reality is if, if everyone in the US would pay as much attention to the wool quality as the Australians do, yeah. we'd be in much better shape and you'd be seeing a whole lot different product. Um, we may get back to it at some point, but the problem is uh, for years and years and years here, meat has had a higher value than wool and the people have responded to it by not taking care of the wool like they should. Yeah, I think that's a perennial problem when you're, especially on a large scale, you know, that's what happens um, because everyone's thinking about the bottom dollar, so what makes the most sense and so sometimes fleece goes by the way. Yeah. That said, I, you know, I, when you said earlier, you know, that synthetic is kind of replacing a lot of the wool market, I, you know, this has just been like going on for so long and I, it's just hard to believe it could still be that people are still wanting to buy and you said as a knitter synthetic yarn is like the worst thing to work with because it's just a dead fiber it has no <laughs> life and you know wool is just right. the opposite you know you're just so aware that it's a living fiber living in that it's always um you know it's elastic it's absorbent it's lofty and it can change oh, yeah. you know it, you know this bale Next year, there was a drought somewhere in between, and this feels a little bit different. I mean, you're really responding, you know, the, what you're getting is always response to where the conditions were during that year. Um, but for Christmas, I gave everybody merino underwear because I just think that's the future. <laughs> it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And that's, that's why we're developing the, the, the fine wools, um, the merino flock here. But the Corydales are a... Are a fantastic sheep. Yeah. They're very um, hardy compared to the Merinos, in my opinion. Um, they're more adaptable. They do better in uh, higher rainfall areas. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of attributes of the Corydales and, um, and, and the fiber apparently, although I admit I'm not a hand spinner myself, um, it's very easy to spin in the grease. Yeah. It's, you know, so just so this is about Corydale, but back to the Merino. Um, if you um, so, are you seeing that flock as your commercial flock? That you yeah, it is. Other? Okay, so Corydale, it's really this is for the hand spinners. It's a medium wool, it's oh. and it's you can keep. But the Merino flock, um, you see more as just shearing and selling bales of that. No, no, actually, no, we're still, we're handling the Merinos the same way that we are the Cordells. And in fact, we're able to, the cord, the Merino wool in the end commands a higher price, the covered Merino wool. Um, our wool prices here range for covered fleece that's skirted so that everything, only, only wool that's under the cover is included in the fleece. So, we end up, say, with fleece weights between 
three and a half and the high end would be eight or nine pounds because mm -hmm. we skirted off over half the fleece. Yeah. But then we're getting between 15 and $30 a pound. And for and, the most part, the, the merino wool is, is, is bringing $30 a pound. And is that to a hand spinner? Or? Yeah. 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 So, so you we're, gonna, that will be your market. Yeah. Yeah, we are, we are, we are selling, uh, we're, we're aiming to sell, um, commercial merino rams and um, to sell merino wool to hand spinners. Mm -hmm. But what, what we like about the merinos is at the end of the day, even the uncovered stuff is going to be able to go to the you know, commercial market still is interested in that. Yeah. It may be $1.50 a pound, yeah. uh, but that's better than the Corydale wool where we're currently throwing away the the, the lower end, it's got some vegetable matter in it. You know, it's, it's just going to the landfill or to use as mulch or whatever, which is very sad. Yeah, yeah. Big change from when I started when I was a kid. What was, so describe that change. Well, when we, when we were, you know, back in the, in the 80s, we uh, were able to sell commercial wool all day long and it didn't sell for you know big money but it was upwards you know of 80, 80 or 90 cents a pound or you know sometimes over that mm -hmm. um and it was i mean it's only been really recently that the wool mills in the in the u.s that the wool buyers are are like we just have no use for this wool we will we'll pay you 10 cents a pound for it mm -hmm. and at that level it might as well go into garbage i mean there's no it's the expense of, of making 10 cents a wool. It's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth it. So it's hand spinning or, or nothing right now. Oh, that's so interesting to me. As someone who would love to see the whole world reduced to sheep farms, is there any, um, any advice you would give to someone who's interested in starting a sheep farm or raising well, sheep? Um, yeah, well, I would say definitely do the, do it. It's a tremendous, it can be a tremendously rewarding um, uh, hobby or slash career. Um, I think if anyone is interested and you have the, and you can, you can get a hold of the, the land to do it, it's really, it's really good. Um, sheep, I think, are generally good for the land. They don't, um, they don't uh, degrade the, the pastures and stuff. They don't make big, big, you know, big holes and ruts and things. Um, as as long as we do our best to rotate um, pastures, um, then they're really good for, I think, building soil quality, et cetera. Although I'm no expert by any means on on that kind of agriculture. But anyway, the 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 biggest advice is it's not easy. Um, in the end, um, cheaper a little trickier than cattle because you can't just put them out there on the pasture and forget the, about them. Um, you do need to trim feet. Um, you do need to be very concerned about intestinal parasites. There are some, some treatment options for intestinal parasites that are right on the horizon that are possibly going to be really, um, uh, 
earth-shaking developments, but at the moment there's a lot of resistance to antiparasitics. So um, in, if, you're, if you're east of the Mississippi uh, River and you're raising sheep in the summertime, you've got to do pasture rotation or you may even have to keep them un, in the barn some when it, during wet, warm weather. Um, GI parasites are the number one problem and new folks that get into it will will be very, very disappointed and, you know, find out through the school hard knocks that, you know, you can have sheep that look healthy and go from healthy to dying mm -hmm. real quick with the homonchus parasite. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be on your toes with that. But um, if you uh, rotate pastures and, and, and monitor your sheep and monitor their gum color and, uh, you know, just get into it and it's fun. It's, 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 it's really fun, but it's not, it's not like cows where you see herds that just go out on the range and just, they're out there. What's the resistance to it? You said there was some resistance. Oh, so to the, it. Yeah. 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 So there's a parasite that's um, uh, called homunculus. I think it's homunculus contortus. Um, it's a, a, a roundworm that sheep get and they're, plug feeders, which means they, they basically uh, will uh, feed off of the lining of the, the sheep's stomach and they will cause, they cause anemia. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, we traditionally think about animals that are heavily parasitized getting diarrhea, mm -hmm. and that doesn't even really happen as much with the homunculus worm. They just, uh, sheep go from normal to anemic and die rapidly if they get a big parasite load. And over the years, there, ha there are only a handful of, of, of anti-parasitic drugs available to sheep breeders. And over the years, the worms have become resistant to the almost every, pretty much every anti-parasitic that we have. And the pasture management has been tricky as well. Um, so starting to see the same thing in greyhound dog breed, getting resistant hookworms. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it'll happen and it can happen in any species, but it's particularly problematic in sheep. Um, now at Virginia Tech, they've come up with a novel solution. Um, and I'm trying to remember what, that, what, it, what it is. I believe it's a type of either fungus or bacteria that you, that you feed to the sheep that that kills the parasites. So different, different. Uh, they've been working on vaccines and things, but this symbiotic thing where, uh, um, or, or, or biome, microbiome solution, I think is gonna be the thing where we're gonna be able to feed um, beneficial bacteria or fungi to the sheep that when once that gets out on the pastures, gonna kill the larvae and, Oh, that's yeah. nice. That'll be really cool. That'll be really cool. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much. I think I'm going to run out of time in a minute, but um, this has been great. I hope you'll let me do this again because I have some more. Yeah. So just, uh, uh, but this has been very helpful. And um, I think that, you know, this, I, I tend to, I think all of us that are knitters, we romanticize sheep. And I just, I think it's really important to kind of understand how much is involved really, because you are responsible for this human being, this animal, and they give us so much. And as I've been reading the history of sheep, I mean, they've been around since we've been around, 
So it's a long relationship, but most of us are pretty separate from it. But so farmers, you still are in touch with what this means to to be next to an animal. Well, yeah, yeah, it's really rewarding, and it's really fun to see, you know, to see people using merino wool in particular, and on all and all the from base layers on up. And it's renewable. It's you know biodegradable. It's it's a perfect solution for the times that we're in right now, where people want to feel good about what they're doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah it's it's great. So maybe um, let's have to run as. We do these limited editions. I try to do them fairly frequently of just doing, you know, a rare, unusual breed, but it'd be interesting to do a Rupert Merino. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you're on. I mean, we, we'd, we'd certainly be interested in that. Okay, well, we'll talk. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. enjoyed meeting you and have a good weekend. Yeah, see ya. Bye-bye. <laughs>